G'day, g'day. I'm Ravi Naya. I hope each and every one of you and your families are, are doing well, staying safe, staying indoors and washing those hands in this, uh, in this age of COVID-19, this interesting age. Um, I believe the former great Australian cricketer Damien Fleming, I think he spoke for all of us really, when he remarked the other day that he hoped another former great uh, Australian cricketer Mervyn Hughes had just one more bouncer to knock this bloody virus off its legs. But anyway, let's get down to business. So welcome to a third edition of A Techno Legal Update, the podcast bringing to you analysis of some developments of the past month at the intersection of law and technology. Uh, as I've said, this podcast is produced by me as part of my role as the Special Interest Group Technology Officer for the New South Wales Young Lawyers Communications, Entertainment and Technology Law Committee, or CET. And folks, um, this is a COVID-themed edition. Whether I planned it to be one or not, that's another issue. Um, But look, fair winds and following seas, let's get stuck right in. So our first article is actually a tweet from uh, the Prime Minister of Australia's official Twitter account. The app we are working on to help our health workers trace people who have been in contact with coronavirus will not be mandatory. So this tweet was published on the 18th of April at 12.20am UTC. So as a bit of background, a key plank of the world's fight against COVID-19 is contact tracing, the discovery and close monitoring of the people whom individuals infected with the virus have come into contact with, uh, as per the World Health Organization definition. This will help identify who needs to be put into quarantine and who requires medical treatment to help contain the virus. So, in line with high-tech contact tracing methods deployed in overseas jurisdictions such as China and Singapore, the Australian government is developing a contact tracing smartphone application. According to a spokesperson for the Government Services Minister, the app is being modelled closely on the Trace Together application deployed by the Singaporean government, which utilises Bluetooth signals emitted by devices to help identify whom their users have come into proximity with. It is considered that 40% of Australians will need to download the app for it to serve its intended purpose, raising concerns about people being forced to download it. These concerns were arguably exacerbated by the mixed messaging coming from the government. The initial message was that there would be no coercion. Then, on Friday 17 April, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer did not rule out the potential for installation to be compulsory if below 40% of people installed it. To correct what was called a comms nightmare by the ABC's Ariel Bogle, the PM stepped in on Twitter to clarify that downloading the application will be voluntary. So this issue regarding the app being opt-in or mandatory, uh, opt-in versus mandatory rather, is reflective of an arguable cornerstone of privacy law in general. The informed consent of people to the collection of their personal information. Clear communication about the application, the data collected, and its functioning and access rights to that data are essential 
not least in light of the potential to otherwise erode confidence of the public in Australia's response to the virus. The right of privacy, as outlined by Article 17 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, can only be interfered with in a manner which is lawful and not arbitrary. Conduct by a collecting agency must be as per a regulatory and operational framework. It is good policy that at least the regulatory framework, such as legislation, be published to counter notions that interferences with privacy thereunder are arbitrary or unlawful. It could be argued that the Australian government's attempt to be transparent about the nature of the app has been found wanting, seen in the several questions raised about it, including on the nature of access rights for data collected, the nature of privacy protections, how function and mission creep will be avoided, whether employers can force workers to install it, or whether Australia should adopt the strategy of Singapore in such digital contact tracing in light of a product lead working on the Singaporean app, Singaporean deployed app rather, considering that the latter app is not a coronavirus panacea. Quote, if governments are not transparent about the facts, then societies cannot have the right conversation, namely one critically analysing the merits of different approaches to contact tracing, such as Bluetooth versus GPS-based solutions, and indeed the policy implications of the choices made in and through each approach. If societies are not wisely using their very limited time as it is at the moment to interrogate these latter facets of this new reality, they risk, as the Thomson Reuters Foundation put it, sleepwalking into surveillance. End quote. Societies may take a disproportionately aggressive approach and not consider, for instance, the importance of sunsetting of any monitoring methods. So, folks, I'd like to ask you, how do you rate the Australian government's messaging regarding the forthcoming app? How does it compare to how other jurisdictions have approached the issue? Also, um... Bluetooth-enabled contact tracing, just as a bit of an explainer, involves devices within Bluetooth range of each other for a certain length of time, transmitting cryptographic keys to each other. Under, say, the Apple and Google approach, they announced this uh, very recently, the keys would change every 15 minutes, they're stored locally on the device and deleted after 14 days. If the device owner tests positive, they can consent to their device broadcasting to the cloud the keys it historically transmitted to other devices. All other devices participating in the program download these keys from the cloud, and if those devices receive the keys from the infected device owner, their device owners are sent an alert that they came into contact with an infected person. This is considered more privacy-enhancing than a GPS-based monitoring program given that it does not collect any location information. So folks, like, what do you think of the Bluetooth versus GPS approach? Like, are there merits uh, on either side that we've missed? Also note that vendors for surveillance or hacking tools for governments, as well as digital marketing and data broking companies, are joining the contact tracing ecosystem. Could this in fact be a blessing in disguise? Since it increases the attention that the activities of these operators would receive from the public compared to, say, normal times, and potentially encourage stricter regulation thereof. What do you think? (music) 
Our second article is a media release from the Minister for Defence in Australia, the Senator Linda Reynolds. Uh, it's called On the Offensive Against COVID-19 Cybercriminals. So this uh, media release has detailed work by the Australian Signals Directorate, or ASD, which is Australia's Signals Intelligence and Offensive Cyber Operations Agency, to disrupt the targeting of Australians by overseas scammers exploiting the pandemic. So as a bit of context, malicious cyber actors have been using the fear and confusion of populations regarding COVID-19 against them to steal their personal information, such as financial and health details. It could be argued that this is a very opportune, if not the perfect, time for cyber criminals to make a buck, as they say, by relying on potentially greater desperation of their victims to grasp, for instance, at an email-based lure that appears to provide some sort of cure for the virus. There are even concerns about cyber criminals exploiting people who are facing, uh, say, financial difficulty due to unemployment and or boredom as online money mules to help launder the illicit proceeds of the above scams. In this regard, governments, businesses and international organisations have issued warnings about an uptick in, uh, in fraud or attempts at fraud during the COVID-19 pandemic. The consequences of such act activity are indeed severe for victims, such as those who may be deprived thus of their life savings at a time when they need them the most. One should note also for the sake of completeness, the involvement of state actors in malicious cyber activity uh, during the pandemic, such as reportedly intrusions into healthcare providers or public infrastructure. There is an argument that countries would be trying their hardest to steal COVID-19 research from each other as well as international organisations, or exploit the strain on their targets' defensive cyber controls in the context of the pandemic to bolster their existing signals intelligence and espionage efforts. For instance, Reuters reported in early April that hackers working for the Iranian government attempted hacking the personal email accounts of WHO staff. The American cybersecurity firm FireEye also detected a surge in new offensive cyber operations conducted by a suspected Chinese government-affiliated entity since late January this year, targeting over 75 entities across sectors like healthcare, manufacturing, and not-for-profits. So, Australia, through the ASD, has, quote, disrupted activities from foreign criminals by disabling their infrastructure and blocking their access to stolen information. These efforts are in parallel with the work of the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, ACSC, to fight COVID-themed scams and that of the telecommunications sector, quote, to block access to websites identified as malicious. Even Google and Microsoft have been involved to ensure that the browsers they produce flag these websites as such, and users are warned before visiting them. The Director-General of the ASD, Rachel Noble, PSM, said that COVID-themed cybercrime targeting Australians is expected to continue. But she also stated that, quote, our offensive cyber campaign has only just begun. So among the crimes these offensive cyber efforts are targeting is fraud, which is fueled especially by, as I already said, the desperation and fear of its victims. These emotions are driven in no small part by mistrust or absence of information 
provided by governments related to COVID-19 and or measures for an, for an effective response to it. Governments must thus be transparent and avoid mixed messaging and work proactively to connect with citizens and maintain or bolster the trust citizens place in the public institutions fighting the virus. This will help reduce the risk of victimization sorry, for fraud since citizens can more easily discern that certain emails sent by criminals, obviously, are fraudulent. There is also the role of technology companies such as ISPs, browser manufacturers, or social media companies, collectively significant communications choke points, to stop the flow of disinformation and other data facilitating fraud around the world. They are key to ensuring that such activity is, let's face it, stopped at its source, such as by flagging and blocking malicious websites, uh, messages, and actors exploiting their platforms. The efforts of government agencies to fight COVID-19-themed fraud overall has multiple facets. So here are two. Firstly, of course, the offensive cyber role to disable the infrastructure uh, used by and the efforts of uh, criminals, like in this case. Offensive operations are crucial to providing a cyber deterrent and thus represent, uh, ironically, a key part of the cyber defense toolkit for a country. I mean, as they say, the best form of defense is attack. The second facet uh, is also their role as educators to help consumers better protect themselves against fraud and build on the citizenry's trust in the work and messaging of agencies during the pandemic. Bringing all of this together is the importance for government agencies technology companies, and citizens to cooperate in their efforts to detect and disrupt COVID-19-related fraud. As the ASD Director-General said, close cooperation with telecommunications and IT companies is vital in providing increased protective barriers. Folks in any operation targeting a geographically distributed group of adversaries, cooperation is axiomatic of a successful one. And this would be reflective of the need for cooperation among stakeholder groups more broadly as part of our efforts as societies to defeat COVID-19. So people, for discussion, what do you think about the use of the Australian Signals Directorate or, you know, any other offensive cyber, cyber agency in this fashion? Like, you know, they're going after, say, cyber criminals rather than state actors, or at least that we know of, um, in this way. Also, what is your response to the issue of countries continuing offensive cyber operations against each other for intelligence gain in the present circumstances? Of the stakeholder groups I've mentioned, like government agencies, tech companies and citizens, whose do you think is the most important role in fighting uh, COVID-19 fraud? And finally, what additional practices or mechanisms would you recommend for these stakeholder groups to adopt to fight this fraud and malicious cyber activity. Also, I just want to clarify my reference to the ASD Director General as Rachel Noble PSM. The PSM is an Australian uh, award given to public servants. It's known as the Public Service Medal. So that's why those um, initials are after her name. Our third and final article for this edition comes from Michael Koziol and David Escort at the Sydney Morning Herald. It's titled, Zoom Video Conferencing Apps Under Privacy Commissioner's Microscope. 
so facing greater scrutiny regarding their privacy and cybersecurity controls as user numbers have soared, the developers of video and teleconferencing applications like Zoom are within the crosshairs of privacy regulators. As a bit of background, in the pandemic and resulting social isolation, millions worldwide are turning to video and teleconferencing applications such as Zoom, House Party and Skype to connect with each other. These applications developers have thus experienced a surge, to put it mildly, in demand for their products. Zoom is a good example, reported in early April as having up to 200 million daily users relative to just 10 million in December last year and being the number two and number one ranked app in the United Kingdom and United States respectively. The privacy and cybersecurity controls implemented, however, by developers of such applications have been found wanting by experts and governments. Problems have included an absence of password protection for meeting access by default, which precipitated a significant trend of gate-crashing meetings. Unauthorized sharing of user data with third parties like Facebook. A lack of end-to-end -end encryption and little ease for users to adjust their privacy and security settings. Uh, note, however, folks, that some of these problems have been resolved since the article was published by the SMH, or the Sydney Morning Herald. Many users would neither have done privacy and security due diligence of these applications, nor changed their default settings. Given the sheer number of users, including children, the risks of online harms and violation of privacy are multiplied, concerning regulators to a great extent. Given the severity of such concerns and risks, some American school districts, the US Department of Defense, and SpaceX have steered clear of Zoom. Authorities in multiple jurisdictions have been warning of the hacking of the applications, running the meetings, and gatecrashing of those meetings. In late March, the New York State Attorney General was reported to have inquired with Zoom about its cybersecurity controls. These regulators concerned include the Australian Information Commissioner and Privacy Commissioner, Angeline Fork. While acknowledging the potentially large benefits of video conferencing applications, she has warned of new risks and stated the requirement for application developers to, you know, be transparent about how they handle personal information, uh, what what they are doing to make their controls user-friendly, and of course, bake in privacy and security. The commissioner reminded organizational users of applications like Zoom that they have to replicate as much as possible the privacy and cybersecurity measures that they previously employed in a business-as-usual environment in the new online media they use for conducting their operations. Her office is evaluating the privacy impacts and the nature of regulatory action required in response, if any. The eSafety Commissioner, Julie Inman-Grant, is involved as well, flagging the imperative for the swelling user bases of these applications to be proactive in guarding their privacy and cybersecurity. In particular, Commissioner Grant has advised users to be aware of the need to potentially change default settings. So, what do we make of all this? To quote the eSafety Commissioner, nude gate crashing, cyber flashing, and other forms of online abuse can happen on any 
video conferencing service providing instantaneous interactivity, but not all platforms have incorporated safety by design into these services. And I think the, the commissioner hits the nail on the head there, because of course there are inherent privacy and cybersecurity risks for any piece of software. And it is incumbent on the developers to institute risk-based controls to mitigate those risks and comply with relevant legislation. In this case, the Privacy Act, for instance, 1988 Commonwealth. Adopting a safety by design approach would help uh, developers, you know, fulfill their, their regulatory obligations and mitigate those risks. Users should also conduct due diligence of stuff like, you know, the the compliance record of the developers, the terms and conditions for the service and the application, and how they can adjust the users, that is, default settings to protect their safety while using the software. The imperative for developers and users to act in this way is all the more critical when the relevant software is used across a variety of sectors by a massive user base and is used for facilitating communications. The implications of a cybersecurity and privacy breach of such software are grave when, for instance, human rights activists organizing through these platforms could thus be monitored by authoritarian regimes, or when thousands of children are using the application for running their classes while in self-isolation. Conversely, you have to consider the argument that the developers of video conferencing applications like Zoom have had a tough ask. They could not have predicted 10 years worth of product demand in the space of, well, less than six months. Their timeframes for developing and implementing product, privacy and security updates have been rather compressed, shall we say. Still, one should note that, you know, if Zoom is taken as an example, it was an enterprise-focused application. That suggests that Zoom should have had robust privacy and security controls compliant with applicable legislation already in place. Because, you know, don't businesses have more to lose from a breach of their comms than a private citizen? Given the large number of new controls Zoom has only instituted in the past few months, if at all, that raises questions about Zoom's appreciation of its responsibility to users as well as its compliance obligations. Moreover, Regardless of the market capitalization or size of the development teams or their target market for these applications, they attract regulatory obligations under privacy and cybersecurity regimes. They must comply and they will be judged on that compliance, not the quality of their public relations campaigns or, at least exclusively, the size of their user bases. On a lighter note, uh, a silver lining of the privacy and security clouds surrounding video and teleconferencing applications is that we are paying more attention to privacy and cybersecurity for such software on which we are so dependent in seeking to work and communicate with each other during the pandemic. Thanks in part to the proactivity of regulators, we are having this important conversation, which obviously, you know, goes beyond any one application like Zoom. It can be argued that, you know, it sounds funny saying this, but legacy software like WebEx has escaped such scrutiny where their controls were regarded as weak as Zoom. And as has been said many a time, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And it is fantastic that we have opened a few windows thus.
So folks, uh, there you have it, a COVID-themed third edition of a Technolegal Update. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support and your words of encouragement. I'm glad that you folks are liking it. Um, if you have any feedback about you know issues I could have covered, uh, any you know little facets that were left unexplored, please don't hesitate to let me know on the socials at Ravi Rocks um, with two Ks on Twitter at Tech Legal Update with the capital T L N U of course. Um, and yes, um, I would like to close this show by giving a shout out to to all the wonderful health workers, police officers. Uh, administrative staff and soldiers who are working their butts off to keep us safe Um, so folks please listen to what they're telling you stay safe stay indoors and go well Um, i'll see you later cheers